Mr. Jared Ferrazano with us today, and I want to lift him up in prayer. He is going to be going out on the mission field with his class, right? And it's Nicaragua. Nicaragua? Well, you know what it is. That's South American country. Anyway, Jared, if you just want to stand there, and we're just going to lift you up and just pray for you. Just a, a reminder of people going out on the other sides of the world in order to do the Lord's work. And just keep in mind as we're praying for him tonight, just keep him in mind and continue to pray for him. Um, when is he leaving? And when does he come back? Okay, so a little over a week. So let's lift him up in prayer. Father, I lift up my brother Jared to you, and I just pray that you would go before him, that you would make that way straight. I pray, Father, for the reason that you're bringing him there, that, Lord, not only he, but his friends that he's going with would be able to achieve your purposes. And so once again, Father, I just pray that you would fill them with your spirit and that you would use them in ways that are even beyond their ability. And so, Lord, we look forward to bringing them home safely and hearing, Lord, of all that you've done. But as of right now, on this side of it, Father, just protect him, watch over him, and keep him, as well as those who go with him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah chapter 20. It's Jeremiah has been going through some pretty difficult days. There's been four times that we've seen that it just seems like the situation gets the better of Jeremiah as he's given this message that he knows God has called him to give, but doesn't seem to be any fruit from the message, doesn't see anybody reacting to the message. Matter of fact, after the death of the righteous king, King Josiah, Jeremiah has been the subject of ridicule. And there's the same thing with even Isaiah. It was in the year that King Uzziah died that he saw God. He realized that God was his help. Well, when King Josiah left Jeremiah, Jeremiah seemed like he was standing all alone against the opposition. Why? Because of the message that he preaches, and it's because of the message that we preach that we will suffer opposition as well. The message that he preaches is a message that ridicules the unsaved, and disturbs the backslider, and they don't really want to hear it because they're convicted of it. His unpopular message, it speaks of a coming judgment because of their current sins. And we've seen the people, unfortunately, they've seen the same thing exist in the northern kingdom of Israel, and Assyria came and led them captive, and now the southern kingdom of Judah is participating in these things. They're participating in idolatry, in neglect, and just a lackadaisical relationship with God. If you take any person for granted in a relationship, then that relationship is never going to be all that it can be. Nobody likes to be taken for granted. How can you possibly take God for granted? Well, it's forgetting all that he's done, it's forgetting who that he is, and it's forgetting what he is able to do. And so we know, history tells us, and the Bible bears it out, God's about to send Babylon as a wake-up call in order to get the attention of the people back to him. It's the same reason why he allows trials and tribulations to enter into our lives, because we all have to admit it's during the hard times of our lives that we pray a little bit stronger. We're a little bit more diligent. We have a greater ear to hear what the Spirit has to say as we're in the Word of God. And so all things work together for the good, and the hard things, they seem to do a deeper work than some of the superficial or even the easy things. And so even today, well, the point of attack back then is the same point of attack that we experience today. 
there was the softening of sin by the cheapening of grace. The Jews back then, especially even in the southern kingdom, they just thought that they were something special. Why? Because Jerusalem was in their territory, and there's the temple, and God is going to protect us forever. Well, they have cheapened God's grace the same way that people can cheapen God's grace, that we can even cheapen God's grace today. Just thinking that God is in obligation to forgive, well, not understanding the precious blood of Jesus Christ was spilled so that I would come to the knowledge of grace and my sins would be washed away. There's the refusal to acknowledge a day of judgment. They just simply did not believe the prophet that Babylon was going to be knocking on their door, even though, again, they saw Assyria haul off into captivity their northern brothers. And even today, mankind mankind chooses to ignore that day of judgment, although the Bible speaks, and Jesus even spoke of it, that this day of judgment is going to be a reality. Matter of fact, it's because of the terror of the Lord that we persuade men. The terror, the terror of mankind standing before a holy God, unable to give any kind of excuse. And then there's the lack of personal accountability. We are all accountable. The more that we know the word and understand God and God's way, we're accountable before the Lord. And so we have been given grace. We, there is that day of judgment, but God has delivered the born again from that day of judgment. But I want to be well-pleasing to the Lord. And so we need to keep each other accountable. We need to be accountable before our holy God. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 through 5, we see the same thing existed right at the beginning. It says, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, the people of Jeremiah's day have become very arrogant. They believe that God will not bring them into judgment, and they continue on in their sin. But it is to these people that God's message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins has gone out to. And so Jeremiah has been going out and warning the people, but they have not wanted to hear. He's taken the things that God has given, them, given him and delivered it to them, and they have persecuted him. And they have done some things to him that he never thought would happen when he got his commission from the Lord, but now he's realizing how difficult ministry can truly be. And so God... God is good, and God has been patient with the people, but his patience is coming to an end. He will not strive with mankind forever. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, God commanded the prophet to say to them, As I live, says the Lord of God, keeping in mind that Ezekiel was a contemporary of Jeremiah, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? God's desire is that mankind would repent and come back to that right relationship with God. And again, we have to have that confidence in our own lives that as we wander away from the Lord, as we outright sin, that we have that opportunity to come back into a right relationship with God through simple repentance and seeking after him. But also, the people who God has called us to, we need to be of that mindset. You never know when God is going to do a work, when he's going to enlighten the heart, and a person is going to open their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and repent and get right with him. We never stop. We never give up. Because there is always opportunity 
because this is not about me. It's not about you other than being obedient, but it's all about what the Lord wants to do. With your children tonight, they're going to be learning about the spies that they had gone out into the land and they came back with a bad report and the people became discouraged because of the bad report. But God never told Moses to send out spies. God told Moses to go up to the border and when he tells them to go in, to go in and to inhabit the land. But unfortunately, they sent in spies. Now, the spies came back with the report, but it's a report, really, that God had already given. He already told them they've got walls up to the skies, and they have people in there that are the size of giants. But the people became disheartened. And we were talking about it after the devotion, and I kind of brought up the point. These people were right up to the border, but they couldn't take that step of faith. And now, the step of faith was predicated upon God telling them to do it, but they couldn't take that step of faith and they were unable to enter in, and they perished out into the wilderness. And I just brought up the point, how many times have you been right up to the border? Border of what? Wherever it is that God has called you to be, wherever it is that God has called you to do, and you didn't take that last step of faith, and you didn't get to experience all that God had for you. And how much more so when it comes to witnessing, when it comes to sharing God's word, the times when God told you to open your mouth and speak. I'll even fill your mouth with these words. And you didn't take that step of faith because you were, well, there were big walls or giants. You were just afraid, whatever the reason may have been. And you didn't get to experience all that God had for you because you didn't speak. You never know when God is going to knock down a big wall or slay a giant or turn a heart. And we must walk by faith. And so Jeremiah is in the land of the perishing. My wife has been out of town. She was bringing her mother back up north. My mother lives with my sister-in-law. Terry was up there with her for a couple of days. And one of the evenings while I was by myself, I watched the movie, The USS Indianapolis. The USS Indianapolis was on a top-secret mission at the end of World War II. They were delivering the nuclear bombs to the area of the Pacific so that they could be loaded onto airplanes and delivered to Japan. Because it was so secret, nobody knew that that ship was coming, and when it left, nobody knew when it was leaving. And so it was on the high seas, it was returning, and again, nobody knew about it, and a Japanese submarine happened upon them and put four torpedoes into the hull and sunk the ship. There was over a 1,000 men on board, and about 800 of them went into the water. They survived the attack, they went into the water, but the problem with those sailor, sailor, sailors as well as all of humanity, is they're treading water in shark-infested waters. There was that unknown, the unknown, and you can imagine seeing the shark fins or knowing that they're down there and even hearing the screams of others and just what that would do to your heart. Well, after I think it was four, might have been five days, I don't recall, finally the airplane spotted them and they sent ships and they went and they reached their hands down and they pulled the, the survivors into the boat. Uh, of 800 men that went into the water, only about 300 survived. The rest were either drowned or died from exposure or they were killed by sharks. Well, it's the same thing. God reaches his hand to mankind through the evangelist, willing to receive him, or I'm sorry, willing to relieve him of his predicament. God is reaching into all of humanity that is, is, is in this desperate situation, but man becomes comfortable in his situation. He decides that he will pull himself out at the last minute. He'll save himself. 
So he slaps God's hand away by unbelief. The way this is achieved is by slapping away the person sharing God's word. It's how mankind silences God in their life. And the conviction that it brings is by, I don't want to hear it anymore. By, by either or maybe not coming around you anymore, not having you come around. How many of us lost friends, even close friends, and even family once we became born again? The friends that I had before I was saved, I, I don't associate with any of them today. Not so much by my doing, because I'd love to talk to them, love to share with them, but mostly from their doing, not wanting to have anything to do with myself anymore. And we've all experienced that to some sort of degree. So up to this point, God's mouthpiece, Jeremiah, has had his life threatened and his reputation soiled. We've seen depression come upon him and discouragement from him. Again, Jeremiah, we never see any one piece of fruit from this ministry, but we have seen some discouragement, we have seen some depression, but all in all, what we really need to see is this man as he was obedient. And now what we're going to be seeing tonight is a physical attack against him. Publicly, he's a pillar, but privately, he's in pain. So the first thing that we're going to look at is really back in chapter 19, the last couple of verses. What we're going to see, we close with last week, is a public proclamation. In verse 14 of chapter 19, it says, Then Jeremiah came from Tophet, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy. And he stood in the court of the Lord's house and said to all the people, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring on this city and on all of her towns all the doom that I have pronounced against it, because they have stiffened their necks, that they may not hear my words. And so they become a disobedient, hard-hearted people. God used this illustration of Tupet. Tupet means fireplace, and it was really the valley of, of Hinnom. This was basically the dump that was outside the temple gates. It was a place where pot sheds, what they had a pot that was broken, or we, we saw the illustration of the potter, and if something didn't turn out right, they would just throw it out there. Further on was the dump, and there was a continuous fire that was out there. Topet means fireplace, and the idea is just a continual fire. And the idea here is the illustration that God is using is this is where you guys are going to end up unless you're obedient to the word. And I mean, it's the essence of what the scripture says. It's that man would turn from his wicked ways and man would be saved. And you must consider what it is that mankind is saved from. It's that eternal fire, that place where the worm never dies. And so that's just a biblical reality that we can't soften and we must not ignore because far be it from us, as much as it depends upon us, that anybody would stand before a holy God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ because that would be absolute terror. And so although the northern kingdom has been laid waste, the people of Judah thought that they were impervious to judgment. The reality of the presence of the temple, as I said before, has become a crutch rather than a relationship with the Lord that would lead to their peace. They just looked upon that temple just as today man will look upon religion and think that he's right with God because of that. For the vast majority, I shouldn't say majority of my life now, but it was for the first part of my life, my crutch was my Catholicism. It's that which I leaned upon and I had depended upon it that, well, that will get me through that time of judgment. I sure hope that gets me into heaven. But nobody's religion gets them into heaven. It's where is your relationship? 
Where is your relationship? Looking at the totality of your life, looking at the past week, whatever it might be, what is the one relationship in your life that shines through all others? For my wife, it ought not to be with me. It ought to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. For ourselves, it ought not to be with our children or our grandchildren, but in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we can't do ourselves any good, myself for her or her for me, unless I have a relationship or she has a relationship with the Lord. And we're of no good use to my children or my grandchildren unless our relationship with Jesus Christ is strong as well. And so I'm not to rely upon any agency, but I am to rely upon Jesus. Jesus, as somebody entered my life and shared Christ with me, as I understood the sinful person that I was and I committed my life to Christ, I repented of my sins and I surrendered, and as Christ came into my life and as I can look back and I can see growth in my Christian life, through time spent with the Lord in prayer and in the word, then I realize that I have developed a relationship, a real relationship, just as we develop any relationship with one another. It was the same thing. I just saw my wife at J.C. Penney's in the sporting goods section. She worked in PALS, which used to cruise through the sporting goods section. She got my attention one day, and I decided that I wanted to develop a relationship with her. And so we just started slowly. We developed a relationship. And as we got to know one another, it, it was just, well, we took the next step, and the next step, we became married and lived a life together. And you can look at the life and see the importance of the relationship that we've had with one another. If your relationship with Jesus Christ is even more so important than even marriage or even parenthood, shouldn't it be marquee of your life? Shouldn't it be that which, and I'm talking about you looking at your own life, Shouldn't you see the reality of this relationship? Well, the problem with the Jews back then, and even man today, they have come to depend upon the promises of God, but all the while ignoring the commandments of God. They depended upon the promises of God and all the good things that God has said, but they have chosen to ignore the commandments of God. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, you could say this corporately about a people or individual about a person, but it says, Because you say I am rich or religious and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. We need to see the reality of our situation. The problem with the people, they've masked that reality through their religion. And Jeremiah, he's opening up to them the reality of it, and they don't like the rawness of it. Anytime mankind finds security in who he believes he is and what he can do, he stands at the threshold of destruction. We see this playing out later on when the Lord is speaking to the, uh, to the Jews in the area of the temple in John chapter 2, verses 16 through 22. And he, and Jesus said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple. Now keep in mind, he's in the temple at this time. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. 
And so you have to see the reason that they don't get it is because their dependency is on the temple and their dependency is not on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they're not going to understand spiritual things. It's just a confusion to them. And you see, the, again, the dependency that they had upon this temple. It's a temple that they thought was indestructible, but it was only 30 to 40 years away from being laid waste. But then there's Jesus Christ, he who they should have been depended upon, and they didn't even get the, the intent of what Jesus was talking about. Again, they were blinded by their religion. They were blinded by, even if you will, the temple. Next, in response to Jeremiah's public proclamation, he now gives a public reprisal, or he experiences, I'm sorry, a public reprisal. In verses 1 through 3, now in chapter 20, now Pashur, the son of Emir, the priest, who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Then Pashur struck Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. And it happened on the next day that Pashur brought um, Jeremiah out of the stocks. Then Jeremiah said to him, The Lord has not called your name Pashur, but Magor Mishabib. The past threats have now become a current reality. This man, Pashur, is the chief security officer of the temple. He's an assistant to the high priest, and he's probably been sent to quiet the prophet and make an example of him. Jeremiah is placed in stocks. You've got those pictures of stocks where they have that clamp that goes around in somebody's head and somebody's arm, and usually the person was contorted a little bit. And somebody You would leave somebody in mostly maybe a couple days, but mostly just overnight. It would be borderline torture, but it would be making an example of them. And the idea usually was that there was a sign placed over them on what the charge was. And the idea is, for those who pass by, if you do this, then this is what's going to happen to you. But again, keep in mind, if you were Jeremiah, I know you would have this attitude, because I would have this attitude as well. There you are, you're in the stocks. Your, your, your body is starting to cramp. People are making fun of you. They're probably spitting on you and doing such assorted things such as that. And you're probably wondering, where's God in all of this? Where's God in all of this? Here I, I'm a priest myself. And there was that day that God has called me, and I answered that call, and I've been faithful to that call, and now look where it's got me. And again, we can so easily go that route when difficult days come and hardship enters in. We can so have that mindset when things aren't going how we decide that they need to go. The problem is we don't have the perspective of God. We don't really understand all the work that he's doing. But nonetheless, it can be so easy to become discouraged when things don't go how we think they need to go. And so I can imagine what Jeremiah is feeling like. I can feel for him. Remember, they're not coming up against God, though. I'm sorry, they're not coming up against man. They're coming up against God when they're doing these things but he's the one that they see. He's the one before them. And so the conviction, the conviction hurts, and so they lash out. If there was no conviction, there would be no reprisal. We then see in verse 3 that upon Jeremiah's release, God's got a name change for the prophet's tormentor. Pashur, Pashur means uh, plunderer. And so he's somebody that has control over and he's able to exercise his will over people. But this name change is going to be changed to Magor Mishabib. 
That means terror on every side. And the warning is going to be, there's going to come a country. There's going to come some time in your history, this nation is going to enter in, and this nation is going to surround you. And you're going to know of the evil things that they have done to those of the past. You're going to understand how they take off, take out of that country the best and the brightest. And they put everybody else under tribute. That as far as the king and a lot of the rulers, they usually kill them. And they take the heart and the soul of a nation and they rip it out. They put that nation under tribute so that nation is always in poverty. And the riches that you're enjoying right now that you think that nothing could ever happen to you, he's in essence saying these things will come upon you and they will come upon you very suddenly. Now, kind of an interesting concept here. As we study the scriptures, we see an interesting dynamic to them when it comes to God's people and the Gentiles. Jesus, he was persecuted and eventually he was murdered by the Jews. Now, during Jesus' day, Rome, Pilate, he was all for releasing him. And the book of Acts, we're studying the book of Acts on Wednesday morning at 6.30 in the morning in the men's study. But in the book of Acts, the church is persecuted by the Jews, but justice is sought after by the Gentiles. Jeremiah, he's being struck by his own people just simply for delivering this message that God has given him. And later on, though, he's going to find favor with King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. We, as far as us here today, as far as the church... We need to make sure that our religious zeal does not kill off our biblical sense of love, compassion, and concern for those who are outside of the church. Because you see it on the news, and you've probably even heard it within the church, and maybe you've even had that attitude. As far as what is the worst sin that anybody could ever commit? Well, we have the homosexuals or, or, or the abortionists or you know whatever it might be, and we kind of put them outside of the kingdom of heaven. When the idea is, is that those are sinners that need to be reached for God's kingdom. We need to be praying for such people as that rather than scorning them. Rather than, rather than, than, than putting them out, they need to be taken in. Now, I'm not saying that we need to bring sin within the walls, but we need to bring sinners within the walls. Because if you don't allow sinners within the walls, you never would have came in. I wouldn't have came in. It would be a very empty place. And so we, we can't allow... Our, our, our religious zeal to kill off our biblical sense of love, compassion, and concern. Because God is always able to do a work. God is always able to change a heart. Verses 4 and 6. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and all of your friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and your eyes shall see it. I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive to Babylon and slay them with the sword. Moreover, I will deliver all the wealth of the city, all of its produce and all of its precious things, all of the treasures of the king of Judah, I will give into the hand of their enemies who will plunder them, seize them, and carry them to Babylon. And you, Pashur, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. You shall go to Babylon, and there you shall die and be buried there. Now, to the Jewish mind, this was a curse to be married in a Gentile country. You and all of your friends to whom you have prophesied lies, saying that the things that Jeremiah says are going to happen are not going to happen. So this is the very first time in the book of Jeremiah that finally this conquering nation is named. It's the first time that Babylon is spoken of. 
previously, Assyria was the nation on the rise. Assyria would be like ISIS was, you know, a couple of years ago or a year ago, whenever it was. But now there's always somebody new, and the new nation upon the scene is Babylon. And so from this point forward, the prophet will use the name Babylon over 200 times. Why is this important? Because God is telling them what is going to happen before it happens so that when it does happen, they know it was of God when it does. We just had our picture of prophecy, our prophecy update last Sunday. And the things that are spoken of there, that's the, the bottom line to all that was said and all that was spoke about. And there was actually, I think I left out about a page and a half of notes. There's a lot of things that are going on that are fulfillment of scriptures or at least pointing towards end times. And what we need to see is God spoke of these things. Not specifically as far as you can't find United Nations in the Bible, but we see a lot of these templates are in place for the Antichrist to fit into and the things that were spoken of in times to happen. And so here we have the prophet who is speaking of these things that are going to happen before they happen. So as they're going on, mankind would know that God's hand is continually upon the situation because God's got great promises that are still going to be worked out and there's going to come a time in Babylonian captivity that they think it's over that whatever either Babylon was greater than God or God just gave up but no God is still working these things out in Isaiah 46 verses 8 through 10 it says remember this and show yourselves men recall to mind O you transgressors remember the former things of old for I am God and there is no other I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I shall do all of my pleasure. There's no other that can proclaim the things that he's going to, or that are going to happen before they happen. And so again, this should cause us to revisit the book of Revelation and end-time theology and to look at the things that Jesus said. Remember, he said again in the gospel of mark to watch to watch and we're the generation that he is told to watch now we're not just to sit around and watch we are to actively watch and wait for the lord jesus christ and really what it should do is it should motivate us to the ministry that god has called us to do and so the things that he says will happen they will come to pass in a future date not so much to display his wrath but to show his grace that again mankind would stop and mankind would turn that's the whole idea behind the tribulation the tribulation exists so that man would repent and get right with god god is turning up the heat so that mankind at that time would repent and come to a right relationship with him because the end of times is upon mankind at that time as a proof of god's word this man pashur and his family will be taken captive to babylon and they will die there being a temple official, he was the one who perpetuated the idolatry and lies that existed in the, um, in the uh, community of Judah and in the city of Jerusalem at that time. So God is going to send him to the land of idols, lies, and eventually death. If mankind refuses God in this life, then God will refuse mankind in his death. Thirdly, in response to Jeremiah's public proclamation, he experienced a public reprisal, and now we see a private confession. Before we start, let's make Jeremiah's feelings re relevant to our own. 
Let me ask you, do you know Christ? I'm not asking, do you know who Christ is? But do you know Christ? Do you have that relationship with Jesus Christ? Consider this, Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, the Apostle Paul, that I may know him, now not just to know him, it says that I may know him by experience, not just reading about him, but I would experientially know him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. If you know Christ, you will have experienced the power of his resurrection. What's the power of his resurrection? When Jesus said that he's resurrected and ascended to heaven, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. This is God who has empowered me on the day of my salvation and God who empowers me every day of my Christian life. And then there's the hard one, the fellowship of his sufferings. All who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. Suffering is a part of a Christian's life. And then you will be conformed to his death, just as Jesus set aside some of his godly attributes so that he could die, we as well need to die to our flesh for his glory. And just like Jeremiah, it's going to take a toll. So we see a complaint, verses 7 through 10. O Lord, you induced me, and I was persuaded. You are stronger than I and have prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. But when I spoke, I cried out, I shouted, violence and plunder, because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him. He, he, the idea is, this is just too overwhelming, I can't do it anymore. Nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. For I heard many mocking, fear on every side. Report, they say, and we will report it. All of my acquaintances watch for my stumbling, saying, Perhaps he can be induced. Then we will prevail against him, and we will take our revenge on him. When he says here, Lord, you induced me, the idea is you seduced me, Lord. You seduced me. You took advantage of me. Ministry looked so good and so easy, and it was such a joy when you called me, and I was so excited. Lord God of the universe has called me to be his mouthpiece, and what a blessing that that must be. But the problem is, is that the people aren't receptive to the message, and actually, they're kind of contrary to the message. Lord, you seduced me. We don't always remember things, how they really happen. And unfortunately for Jeremiah, what really happened is recorded. In chapter 1, verse 7, it says, But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, for you shall go to all whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Now, the only reason that you're afraid is because there's opposition. The only reason that God is with you to deliver you is because they want to capture you. Then over in verses 17 through 19, Therefore, prepare yourself and arise. Speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against its princes and its priests, and against the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. So God is saying there is going to be this opposition, but if God is for you, nobody can be against you. 
So what is it that God has called you to do? And what is it that you're afraid to do? And you see, the fear comes when we're dependent upon our own abilities, our own strength, our own power. But that's not how a Christian has been commanded to move forward. We are to move forward in the power of God because God will be with us every step of the way. What God has called me to do, God will enable me to do. So we ought not to make determinations as far as in the work of ministry, again, what God has called us to witness to somebody or be involved in ministry or whatever it might be, based upon our abilities, but based upon God who will empower us to do, again, what he has called us to do. The Word of God, we see here, the Word of God is a motivating and it is a consuming fire. It will be a consuming fire of judgment for the unbeliever. It will be a consuming fire burning in the soul of God's servant that cannot possibly be quenched. And the thing about God's fire that burns in the soul of his servant, it's a fire that spreads. It goes from one to another. And that fire has been spreading for thousands of years. And at one day, that fire, it found the doorstep of your soul and it ignited your soul on the day that you were saved. And far be it from us that it would stop with us, that we would prepare the future generations and that fire would continue to burn until God says, time is up. In Luke chapter 24, verse 32, on the road to Emmaus, it says in these two men who walked with the Lord, and they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? There was just that fire that the Lord kindled within their heart. And again, because he did in their heart, they went and shared with others and others with others. Then we have his conviction. Now, what we're going to see in the last of this chapter is, is a commonality that we see in the book of Psalms, really with King David a lot. There's times when David was moving forward and rejoicing in the Lord, and there was other times when he took his eyes off the Lord, and the situations and circumstances of life overwhelmed him, the same thing that can happen in our lives. And we see, okay, he does well in verses 11 through 13, because it starts out with, but the Lord. Just keep in mind in verse 14, that I. So you see I in verse 14, 11, you see the Lord. Verse 11, but the Lord is with me as a mighty, awesome one. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. He's probably remembering what he had read, or what God had told him back in chapter 1. They will be greatly ashamed, for they will not prosper. Their everlasting confusion will never be forgotten. But, O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous and see the mind and heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for I have pleaded my cause before you. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the poor from the hand of the evildoers. Now, everything would be doing really well if he just stopped here, but he didn't just stop here. And again, you should be able to relate to these times when you're doing really well in the Lord. And it just seems like you're walking strongly with God, and God's there, and his hand is upon your life. But then there's other times when you kind of take your eyes off the Lord and the situations and circumstances of your life, and it seems like God is far from you. Well, that's kind of what happens here in verses 14 to the end of the chapter. Cursed be the day which I was born. Let the day not be blessed in which my mother bore me. Let the man be cursed who brought news to my father, saying, A male child has been born to you, Make him very, making him very glad. And let that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew and did not relent. Let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noon, because he did not kill me from the womb, that my mother might have been my grave, and the womb always enlarged 
with me? Why did I come forth from the womb to see labor and sorrow, that my day should be consumed with shame? Again, Jeremiah. Jeremiah is how we can be as well. He's taken his eyes off the Lord. He's looking at self, the situation, no fruit from ministry. But the bottom line is, is you always have to go back in the beginning. God saved you. He looked down upon your life. Matter of fact, Jeremiah, before you were born, while you were still in the womb, God told him, I, I saw you and I called you. And God always has that future and a hope for his people. And the way he brings that future and a hope is for people who have a heart that it burns for him, is sold out for him, and is obedient to his call. Opposition that we face, and first, the opposition that you face from yourself, but the opposition that you face from others is just proof of all of these things. It's proof of the reality of God. It's proof of the opposition to God. It's proof of the outlash against God. And it's also proof that we are to be of God. Father, once again, we just thank you, God, that you have given us your word. And I just pray, Father, as you have, that we would look at these examples of those who are, who've gone before us and the price that they have paid and the hardships that they endured, understanding, Lord, that the things that we experience are not unique to a believer's life. And so, Father, I pray that this would be motivation for our hearts. I pray that it would be ministry for our souls. And I pray, Father, that it would be realized through our lives in an obedient life that regardless of fruit, regardless of the outcome, Lord, we would just simply do what you have called us to do. And so, Father, we can be such Jeremiah's. We can become discouraged and even depressed at times. Other times, Father, we rejoice in your victory. Help us to keep our eyes upon you, that, Father, we would be properly motivated to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? Sunday, we're back in regular schedule. Sunday morning, we're going to be back in the book of Hebrews, and then Sunday night, back in 2 Kings. Women's small groups will be starting up next week. Um, the men are Tuesday night. We're not going to start that again more than likely until February. God bless you guys. Have a great night.